welcome to the Directors Club with Brad and Al. We are podcasting as one of the sites and podcasts of the Now Playing Network. Here in each episode of Directors Club, we take a look at the films of a single director, their legendary classics, breakout films, personal labors of love, and hidden gems that may be found amongst their filmography. You can never tell what themes and connections to other films may come up when you look at a director's entire body of work. Come join us on the film journey. A journey that takes us this time to the films of British director Steve McQueen. Hello folks, I'm Al. And I'm Brad. And joining us into taking a look at the good McQueen, as I like to call him, <laughs> is uh, is a very special guest, a co-organizer and frequent visitor to the Chicago Film Discussion Meetup Group, uh, who has been uh, discussing films and exploring film work in the Chicagoland area for, I want to say, over 20 years. So it's my uh, yes, yes. great pleasure to welcome uh, Belinda Silber over to the podcast. Hi, Belinda. Hi. Welcome. Hi. Thank you very much. I'm very excited to be here. Yeah, and I'm very excited to go and to talk up these films with you and with Brad because I I find McQueen is one of these very interesting up-and-coming new directors, somebody who's uh, putting a unique spin on various kinds of films that he's already moved across in the limited filmography he's put out so far. The first thing I was curious about was the name, is that it? affectation of, of some kind uh no it's it just happened to be his name but his background is an interesting one i think very different than a lot of directors we've discussed because he comes from the avant-garde art world so he had a lot of short films prior to the films we'll be discussing today and they would not be films you'd see in theaters. They'd be films that you'd see in museums. The avant-garde is something that is divisive, and some enjoy, some some don't. It's it's not really my thing, but I think it's interesting in the context of the discussion we're going to have, because I, I think it's why there's going to be a lot of unusual choices made in these films, and he himself has said that the first time he was ever on a film set was his own. <laughs> I'm a little more receptive, I think, than, than you are with regards towards what I call experimental films. Because I think what's things that film can do that is really cool is just to give us reactions and emotions and get us to thinking about things just through the, the, the basic parts of a film itself, like using light and color and geometry and and also the ability to put us in a unique spot that, that something that film can do in ways that no other uh, artistic medium can create. You know, I think the film installations that he did, actually he did one in Chicago at the Art Institute in 2012. And basically they're installations. Sometimes it's just a very short movie. Sometimes it's just an object. There's one time he his he just focuses camera on a dead horse for so many minutes and that that was it. Or he would follow his brother around with a potted plant. And <laughs> so I think that background is how he learned his camera technique or what I told Alice camera not technique <laughs> because 
when I see his movies, a lot of times it is like watching a piece of artwork because you're, you're engaged in the, in the work. In each one of these films, there's these moments that he shows things in a ways that we've never seen before. Right, right. And part of it could very well be inspired by this idea that, as actually Orson Welles had said, a lot of he credited a lot of his early film success to the fact that he didn't know what not to do. Right. <laughs> and some of these elements were made manifest out from his very first film, Hunger, in 2008. It's a story about the decades-long troubles between the British government and the IRA. As, as the conflict escalates, political prisoners seek forms of protest to call attention to their plight and their cause. When refusals to wash or wear prison uniforms only lead to more brutal beatings, Bobby Sands, played by Michael Fassbender, embarks on a hunger strike that will change the nature of the conflict. So when we talk about McQueen's experimental nature, I think there's definitely a progression where he starts out most attached to unusual structures and then starts working with conventions more and more as his careers go as his career goes on. And so hunger has a very unusual structure and one that narratively has a unique effect but is also challenging as far as how you are able to get into the story he's trying to tell. Because it starts out with very little context, and we're witnessing prison life and also one particular guard's home life, and we're focused on this guard. We're more focused, though, on the terrible conditions of the prisons, especially since this refusal to wash and clean themselves and to wear the clothes provided to them uh, started, there's basically filth everywhere. And so we see, we're immediately thrown into these incredibly awful, degrading situations, but we are not getting the context, aside from a a brief written uh, background. We go through the first part of this film without context, but with visceral effect. When you talk about the opening scene, it's, it's kind of like this mundane, everyday life. He's having breakfast. As in most McQueen's movies, there's very little dialogue. You see him soaking his hands, and part of their everyday existence is looking under the car for a bomb. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know? This is the guard the in guard. particular. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and so you see this clean, middle class, looks like a suburban home. Then very slowly you see the danger. Why do you have to look under, look for a bomb? And then it goes into this, like you said, this horrible prison. The name of the prison was the Maze Prison. Yes. Mm-hmm. Which I thought a lot of it looked like a maze to me. 
Now the visceral, no, the visceral part of it is is something that fairly kind of announces itself. This is that is, at least to me, McQueen is a, a, a tactile filmmaker. In other words, he's a kind of guy who is concerned with putting in like these these surfaces and these these incidental actions that people that people are doing. So when a when the guard is slowly putting his hands into the water it's it's repeated and first you just think it's a, a kind of a ritual that he does just to get to the office and you realize it has a much more practical purpose later you see him repeatedly smoking with a sweat soaked shirt against a, a blank wall that's also repeated and the result of that is to me is to get this uh, this just feeling of an element which may very well bear out in his a future movie of McQueen's where he in the idea that oppressing people also hurts the people doing the oppression that that he is a messed up person because of what he's what he's doing to the people prisoners inside the maze yeah. Not maybe not as bad as the as the people inside, but it's hurting him nonetheless. Yeah, but they're Dr- prisoners. Sorry. They're prisoners just as much as the prisoners. You know, in, in yes. like the guards. Yes, that's and there is a there's a really wonderful image that reflect that too, where they bring in a riot squad to try and like put prisoners through a gauntlet, and you see one of the one of the young policeman is reluctant and there's a great almost split screen where he's on the other side of a wall like losing it as on the other side his colleagues are getting busy of the business of 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 bludgeoning the prisoners being put through this gauntlet and so when we talk about the visceral stuff of water (laughs) once we get to the prisoners and their actions Oh wow! <laughs> this is pro. This is the most artistically scatological movie uh, ever made. Now I haven't seen Salo, uh, so <laughs> but I've never quite seen that uh, substance really rendered in so um, <laughs> tactile a manner. <laughs> there is a uh, well. I, I can't put it any way but bluntly. There is a, a circle of shit uh, on the wall that has been designed almost like a piece of art uh mm-hmm. somewhat of maybe a monument to the oppression and the suffering the prisoners feel this is all based on fact the the truth is i would have found this all a little much if it was a, a fictional story but no this, this that that really happened <laughs> strangely enough on the on the criterion disc of it the disc itself is that design, which is oh. a little off-putting as you're putting it into your machine. Does, yes, yes, does it, have, yeah. does, it have, does it include the plastic gloves you can't <laughs> pop it into your DVD player? Yeah. <laughs> but, but here's the thing, like, this movie brought me on a bit of a journey because there were parts, of the, and, and depending on what part in the movie I'm at, I'm either really liking the film or really disliking it and feeling different ways at, at different parts of the film. So mm-hmm. the first 40 minutes of the film is all this. And because he's so very insistent on not having dialogue, on not letting you in to know these characters at this point in the film, this seems gratuitous. This seems like 
kind of uh, suffering porn. You're just seeing nothing but all this misery. And I was like, well, is this going to be the entire movie? Because I don't think I'm really getting a perspective on uh, the conflict, on what the prisoners want and what's going on. Now, the movie corrects, but that is my reaction at this point in the film. Okay, yeah. and and this is something that I really like about the film because the film goes in several different ways in during the course of its running time, but I find there's a common theme to it, which is a, a very, very unique perspective upon the the type of films about people prisoners who are trapped who are trapped there and what kind of existence must they have this is that's like it's a prison film mm -hmm. it's a prison film and i personally took it as a prison film i'm not that familiar with those the 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 troubles exactly the the conflicts in in that area and and to be honest, the movie didn't really give me a lot to go and either it let me know what those troubles would be or to give me a particular reason to care about a specific issue as to what those what those would be. What it did give for me is uh, a feeling, an impression on how in most of the prison films, when you're on the prisoner's side or you want to have the prisoner's perspective, the idea is how do the prisoners react to the oppression that they're mm -hmm. put under? And like 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 many many fine films, including like Frankenheimer's Birdman of Alcatraz, they rebel against that and they try to overcome that. But in every other case that I can see, the way they overcome it is to go for some noble goal, right? Some some way of like this is a, a way of maintaining your independence, your freedom, your individuality, but also expressed by say taking care of birds in the Birdman of Alcatraz, for example. This is the first movie I've seen where the way you express your humanity is through the most debased methods of all time, like like the prison itself is actually very very clean. It's very it's very structured. It, it, I want to even say that historically speaking, it was actually a, a very modern uh, type prison environment when it was when it was established, and so much of the way that the prisoners can go and express their individuality is through like hiding things and body Ooh. orifices and and arranging their their um diseased food so that their that that their urine pours out all over in a really weird like watery image which harkens back to the initial image yeah. of Roma now now that I've seen that movie <laughs> um and and so that's really interesting to me what does it mean for you to like get a measure of your humanity by doing the lowest animal kind of things you can like Brad said it is taken from a historical fact. Mm -hmm. And I know McQueen actually interviewed people who were in the prison. And like both of you, I think I was kind of thrown off with the time. I didn't know in context what was going on. And when I read later and found out that a lot of quotes in the movie are taken from Thatcher, I was going like, oh, okay, Reagan, Thatcher. I, I kind of got an idea of the timing. And for me, that was odd. I, I really, because it was so barbaric, there was a scene of them cutting hair. Yeah. That mm -hmm. 
was one of the most violent scenes in that movie. And it's just an act of them getting the prisoners clean, giving them clean clothes, even yeah. though those clothes were a little odd, uh, to say the least, that, that outfit. There were some cheesy outfits, there were some yes. Cheesy outfits. Uh, but in a way, and I'm not siding with either one because McQueen didn't either. He passed no judgment. In a way, the guards were just trying to do their jobs. They were trying to make them wear clothing. Mm -hmm. Is that a bad thing? Right. They're trying to make you cut your hair. Is that a bad thing? Right. They're trying to make you take a bath. Is that a bad thing? But There are also plenty of beatings. There's yeah, there's yeah. a lot of brutality yeah. in them trying to instill hu humanity. That's right. Exactly. It's not right. There, there is no, this is a film where it's not the brutality. I don't see an example where it's sadistic. Where it's the, it's the idea of getting pleasure for either from a individuals or a government system mm -hmm. saying, oh, it's going to be so fun or or even politically motivated to to knock these people down. At least as far as what we're looking at in the film, it's exactly to what your point, Belinda, that that they're being brutal towards trying to instill these people to behave like humanity. Yeah. So when I look at this film, just it gets me to examine, well, how is like the idea of civilization is a kind of oppression is a super fascinating concept for me. And then the film shifts into what I think is where it becomes great. The sequence of greatness, which is a 17-minute unbroken shot of a conversation. By this time, we, we haven't been introduced to our lead, Bobby Sands, played by Michael Fassbender, until we're already well into the film. And then we get a scene where he is going to discuss his plans with a priest played by Liam Cunningham. Now, we're going to talk a lot about Michael Fassbender because he's in yes. three of the four films <laughs> we're going to discuss. Yeah. And Liam Cunningham is also a, a great actor. He's probably best known for being on Game of Thrones. And we discussed him earlier in a short film by uh, Michael McDonough mm -hmm. called uh, Second Death. Right. And so you're, you've got these incredibly high-level actors just delivering this dialogue. What they're talking about is now the idea of, of Bobby Sands starting a hunger strike. And the priest is questioning him on why he's doing it, was, what are his intentions, and it becomes clear to him that, that, that Sands is, is ready to die through this hunger strike. And this offends the priest's sensibility. They go back and forth on moral and ethical questions, again, in a shot that lasts unbroken for 17 minutes, and then there's about another uh, six minutes of a, of a second shot. Mm -hmm. And this was spellbinding. The, the way that the actors communicated with each other, the way they now, that they now put everything that had happened before into context. And so where before I felt kind of lost amid all this, now with this sequence, I'm seeing what the true point the movie is trying to make is. 
Mm, yeah, that's something where it didn't quite uh, fit as well uh, for me. That moment is almost as if McQueen had taken a break from the prison and said, okay, well, I made the prison life one particular way. Now let's do a whole other tale of the prison. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It is a whiplash moment as a film that's been very intimate on the kind of ways these prisoners have improvised an existence and try to to make their mark in (laughs) various ways. Now it's... The camera is kept at a far distance. It's a lot more expansive and less maze-like. It's downright noiry with these wafts of ci- of c- cigarette smoke mm-hmm. coming in, and and the camera movement doesn't exist. It's a total static shot, and at the same time, it reveals something which I can see audience would find off-putting in in this movie, which is that the approach on character is very abstract, almost getting into like non-existence. Because that guard we had talked about earlier disappears from the scene by the by this point. Early in the movie, we're introduced to two other people and we're look at their story, and they also aren't really dealt with. Meanwhile, it almost seems that like um Fassbender's character is one of the most mountainy men in there, like <laughs> in the sense that he's he's the most scraggly, he's the most dedicated towards absolutely not giving any veneer of humanity. And once he gets revealed <laughs> to be uh, to be the bad spender we're familiar with, then he gets this moment. I didn't even recognize him until they shaved him. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So that's a that's an that's an interesting development in the film that makes me wonder if how much of that was his choice and the choice of the direction, the choice of the story to show things that way, or was this a matter of well, I'm interested in this now, I'm interested in another exploration on here, but I will say. It is a similar thing to what I was describing earlier, I think so, in that the the priest is saying maybe your situation of attempting to do this hunger strike is a way of is affirming your own ego. It's a way of saying that, oh, this is a move that I can make, and it's sort of for your own gratification as opposed to trying to make a political point, which is an interesting look at like faith and dedication to the idea that was also done in Martin Scorsese's uh, film Silence in a really yes. brilliant way. And, I, and those, that kind of ethics is explored very nicely, but now it's all in a movie that had very little dialogue. Now it's like all dialogue. So, hmm. Well, it was only 17 minutes. And like I told you before, he had considered no dialogue in this movie. Hmm. So. Which, believe it or not, for me, I think it almost might have worked. Almost might have worked. Maybe not for a whole f- a two hours worth, but hmm. Actually, there were times that I needed more dialogue. Okay. <laughs> because there was a point in the movie, there are three scraggly men. Yeah. I have no idea. I know someone has just arrived. Right. Yes. Uh, I know that... One group smokes Lamentations because <laughs> they smoke the Bible. And, uh, yeah, that's a very fun note, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> and you're right. Until they shave them, they, they were just probably the way that the, the government treated them, the British government. That's just this big mass of yeah. beasts. Yes. Uh, so for me, that's what it was. It was just this one big mess <laughs> of scraggly people that I could not make right. any distinction between and give them any humanity. But I, I know there's very little footage of Bobby Sands. 
and he just was on the paper in the newspaper every day with a number for the strike. So I, I don't know why McQueen chose him because there were survivors. In Ireland, he would actually be a fairly famous figure and a symbol of uh, the IRA resistance. But there were others. There so were just, others, yeah, yes. So mm -hmm. I was wondering, what was it about? Quite a few people died. I, mm -hmm. I, I think 66 people participated in the strike, but nine people died before the strike went, went over. Was, okay. uh, uh, they had stopped participating in the strike. Yes, and that's another interesting direction the movie gets, which is that after that 17-minute um, scene, it's mostly Sands' story, and you don't see his compatriots really at all. It becomes sort of a hospital-type right. dramatic so, turn. So we've all had different reactions to this, but I think it's notable that no matter how we're reacting to this, the, 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 this strange structure is all very much in McQueen's plan. Maybe the way we're kind of uncomfortable about different aspects of this movie, it's interesting that, Al, that you and I are uncomfortable about different parts of the movie, <laughs> but but I think it's very much uh, part of the strategy of the film because then you get into the, the third part of the film, which, for me, is the weakest. And this is the hunger strike itself. This is where Michael Fassbender, in real life, loses a, an ungodly amount of weight to the point where he is so emaciated, skin and bones, that it, it's very disturbing to see. That uh, if you've ever seen any footage from, uh, or, or the movie The Machinist with Christian Bale, yep. it's, uh, oh, yes. that kind of thing. Yes. And my, my take on it is this. Now, there's definitely high-level acting going on from, from Fassbender, but I don't think that's what people are remembering. I think they're remembering this emaciated physicality, but that takes me out of the film, because as I'm watching these scenes, I'm thinking to myself about what the actor had to go through to get to that weight. I'm thinking how really unhealthy the actor must be to have made himself like that and, and do, to have gone this. So I, I'm now taken away from Bobby Sands' story, and, and that's now competing with Michael Fassbender's <laughs> story for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, uh, my perspective on it is that I, I ver by virtue of that I'm less familiar on the story... I didn't, the Sands part of the story didn't register for me, and I was taking it, not in the sense that, that I was concerned for Fassbender's welfare, so much is that it's, that the discussion, the, the big conversation in the middle is, to me, an, a sort of intellectual fulcrum of both, which, of which both parts of the movie on either side are in the balance. And the first part is just kind of the outside things, the things that people do. Mm -hmm. And the latter part of the movie on the other side of the conversation is the parts that people are or what's left of them. Let's put it there. It's internal because all that stuff about making the, making different uh, uh, stuff on the walls and the, and the different liquids and so on, that kind of goes away 
almost as if like the fuel of the human body is getting more emaciated and it's, he's less able to to give even the most basic body functions right. there's a really there's a really notable image that almost comes where where his back has all these particular sores mm-hmm. and you just see a, a, a hand but you don't see the person whose hand is and he's putting very carefully putting a lotion on that causes him to react it almost seems comes across to me like some sort of kind of anointing of him in the sense that it's that he's sort of a body sacrifice, sort of his own human figure is humanity on the most basic animal or organism level is being sacrificed. That's how I, that's how I took. And that's it. interesting no. because that's almost I think uh, would give argument to what the priest was saying in the discussion situation because how much of this is you being a martyr to the cause uh, to build your own legend so to speak Mm -hmm. because he comes into this absolutely ready to die there is no question in his mind that because his the idea is that the uh prisoners will go on their hunger strike one after another instead Mm -hmm. of all at the same time so him as the first one there's no question of his survival and that leads to the priest's trepidations and then the more during the hunger strike he's shot as if he were a christ-like figure the more it makes the earlier argument between sands and the priest interesting i thought of it as a, a baptism bobby is washed clean of all of the ills of his time in prison mm-hmm. um what was really shocking to me because i came away from all that dirt and grime and all i'm in this very stark white luminous hospital it didn't it didn't look real and there's mm-hmm. a voice off camera saying he's losing bodily functions and his liver is uh not functioning anymore but for me it was if you're a catholic it's very much like the last rite you know you're anointed with oil and that that scene had that, like you said, it was a very Christ-like uh, scene. They take you off the cross and wrap you in white sheets and, yeah. and things like that. There's a really notable uh, element of that that I just was amazed by, where I've never seen this before, where it's not just that they put the sheet on, but they look like they put some sort of cage apparatus yeah. around his chest. Right, because I gather he's so delicate that even the sheet on his skin... Yes would be dangerous yeah, for him. It, yeah. it would irritate his skin, I think. Yeah, yeah so so that that was an image I felt was just powerfully original in the idea of, well, it's sort of a cage to him, right? And yet it's still meant to support him and give his body a structure that his real physical body can't provide. So, hmm. well, what did you think about the last scenes of the birds, his hallucinations? To me, that's still going to that fantasy of the Christ-like rising again, the whole... The whole religious thing. It's foreshadowed in a really nice way when he's in the midst of his strike and you hear this flapping noise on the soundtrack. And McQueen does this great move of having the camera swoop in as if it's a bird perched mm-hmm. from one place and then moves to the other side of the bed and looks at him from there and looks at him from there. It's a, 
a, a really fascinating take on the uh, on um, on what could be a god's eye perspective or a but uh, but the idea to have it as a bird's eye perspective or a crow or raven <laughs> or whichever what mythological is supposed to guide you to the underworld <laughs> maybe that maybe that's the uh, highfalutin way of looking at it but then the scene I think it's the scene where he actually dies and you see uh, kind of an overlay of birds flying over his dying body and it almost looks like his soul is leaving him yeah yeah in, in, in another great image of as his, his he's lying on his side you just get a close-up of his eye and then it's very uh, held as it's superimposed on this field where as a young as a young child he was he was running um, and it relates to a, the, a very critical story that he tells the priest in the middle section it actually reminds me a little bit of of Jake LaMotta's trek through raging through Raging Bull, a guy who's also oh, then he's, losing the weight. Yeah, he's losing the while well, he's losing <laughs> right. the weight and then gaining mean, the, the weight. Know, yeah. yeah, yeah, just just how his body just gets morphed through like just these crises that he had in his character. I was really immersed in in the the prison the wall. I wanted to know wanted to know if they had a maggot wrangler. <laughs> things like that. Uh, right, right. Uh, he he actually said that was one of the first things people asked. How did you deal with those maggots? But it was something about that film that, unlike other f- prison films, I felt that I felt I I could smell the stench. It was so repulsive, and I couldn't look away. That was what. And that, to me, McQueen does that a lot. I am so repulsed by some of the things in his movies, but I can't, I can't turn away. And he keeps that camera there, so I can't just blink. And, and like in another movie, there's a fast cut someplace. Right. He, okay, it's been 17 minutes. I'm still here. <laughs> I got to watch this. I've got to hang in there. I've got to suffer yeah. with this character. Well, one a, of the advantages yeah. of him having worked so long in uh, experimental film is that when he comes in for his debut, he's not a novice. He really understands film language, but through his own interpretation. So he applies the the avant-garde ideas that he started with to his narrative. And on the one hand, there are parts in which I think that undercuts the narrative. On the other hand, there's a poetry and beauty to all his films. They're just shot magnificently, no matter what other criticisms we may have about it. So do you think film school would have harmed him in a way? Oh, yes. I think that it would have made him more conventional. There's no way he would have been able to make Hunger if he had a conventional film school education. Uh, if For no other reason that it's, it uh, abandons any conventional idea of plot structure mm-hmm. when you have our, your main character in effect arrive halfway through the movie with no mm-hmm. setup. <laughs> that's something that gets kind of ironed out of ironed out of your system. And, and, <laughs> and in, in this, and in similar ways, like you would introduce themes in the beginning that would mm-hmm. play out later. This is something that he looks like he's using two d- explorations of these, of this visceral quality Belinda that you brought up. And he puts and uh, and a really fascinating extended conversation in the middle that makes me at least really think of the difference between our our physical action, our being, and the kind of intellectual discussions we can have about 
our moral struggles that we consider as we go through life. In this film, is, and in his other films, I have this written down actually, the film is a meditation on will and endurance on the human body as the ultimate site of protest. Yeah, that definitely comes about, and we're going to see a couple of examples yes, his next movie, of definitely. body expression as, <laughs> as we move on. His next two movies, definitely. Mm. Yep. The next one of which is Shame, released in 2011. In my tangled state of mind, I've been looking back to find where I went wrong. Michael Fassbender plays Brandon Sullivan, a wealthy New York professional whose proclivities towards one-night stands, prostitutes, and porn send him towards the depths of sex addiction. This is complicated by the arrival of his erratic sister, played by Carrie Mulligan, whose own demons force Brandon into a more self-destructive slide. This is the first movie that I saw of McQueen's. So it's left with me with a particular impression that um, that looking at these other films give me a, a slightly different context. Um, it is a, on a topic that I personally find is one of the more ridiculous ailments that Hollywood presents. Yeah, uh, the idea of sex addiction. Boy, what a miserable existence I must have, just <laughs> jumping in from bed to bed with all these anonymous hot strangers. <laughs> it's sort of like one of the most sickening humble brags that your average Hollywood, uh, quote-unquote, stricken celebrity can claim. So let's just say my sympathies towards Fassbender's plight were, uh, were not, not at the highest when I started seeing the film. I'll add to that another prejudice of mine, which is that I'm kind of resistant to addiction films in general. Mm. So whether it was sex, alcohol, or drugs, I feel that just as a narrative, film has a very limited way of portraying these things. This fall from addiction has been featured in so many films. We talked um, on one of our first episodes about Requiem for a Dream, mm -hmm. and I thought that was a film that found an original and different way to portray this. But more often you get a movie like Leaving Las Vegas, oh. which is well-made, as is shame, but is just so inevitable. And when you've seen enough of these, you just get to the point where it's, it's kind of like, all right, I know where this is going. And because... I think this film is a little too confident that its switch from drugs to sex makes it original, but it really just follows the same standard story, although, as mentioned before, filmed very well. This is a case where most of these films in dealing with sex addiction don't quite go for, which is that they, including this one, 
is that they don't show the squallery part of it. Even when, even when um, uh, Fassbender is doing some desperate things, it's filmed in an ultra-cool kind of uh, uh, manner. It's and blue. Everything is blue everything in this is, world. Is, is exactly. It, it, it's, it's such a delightfully a brisk, cool, neon nightmare he finds mm-hmm. himself in. And, and I, I feel that if you're going to go and explore and take the sex addiction part seriously, there's got to be just some points where you're absolutely malignant in a way that uh, Nicolas Cage's character in Leaving Las Vegas takes uh, the abuse so far. And I found that, that, that it didn't get to those depths. Oh, I thought it did. And, and as far as the color blue, I thought of it as, as sadness, like the movie Inside Out. Ah. Um. Sadness blue. <laughs> Uh, because everything was blue. The apartment, the sheets, the train, everything was blue. I thought some of his behavior was destructive. The computer, leaving porn on your computer at work. When he goes into that club, with uh, a gay club, I think, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I thought that was pretty dangerous. I, 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 I did feel he did some dangerous things. When he was in the club with the, with the woman and the boyfriend comes out, Yes, I thought that was a pretty... Dangerous move. I mean, he he was really the cool character most of the time, yeah. and maybe that's why it was blue. Yeah. And, and, I, and the boss was the one who may have been the stereotypical horn dog, you know, right. whatever. Yes. But uh, there were certain things he did. I thought would was. was it was dangerous. There's a Th- that, that's true, but the what happens in the course on the story? It's once the sister has arrived and she uh, she upends his his existence at that point and engages in some really dramatic situations. So I took it that he was engaging in aberrant behavior from the the chaos that the sister was sowing. For me, a lot of disconnects going on here. Uh, one of which is I, I agree with you, Belinda, that. They are showing a degradation and a dark side to the character as far as what happens in the story. In addition to everything else that's portrayed, when his sister does come on the scene, it seems like the two have a strange and unhealthy chemistry that could border on incest. Yes. And so that's very disturbing. But Michael Fassbender is doing something completely different with his performance than the movie is doing because he has such charisma as an actor. He, he's really become one of my favorite actors and probably my favorite actor that hasn't made a lot of what I consider great <laughs> films. Like he's almost always far better than the film he's in. And in this case, he, he's got this very icy cold stare. And, and yes, that kind of fits in with Brandon as a uh, kind of a sexual predator and, as, uh, and when he gets into flirtation mode and his moodiness and I think what we're supposed to read as suffering. But Fassbender is playing this all almost in his own world like and, and there's no arc brandon doesn't change from the beginning of the film till the end of the film thing different things happen but nothing about him changes so i think we're left with this great performance 
that doesn't match what's happening to the character in a film that is, to me, just lost narratively. It's funny. It's kind of like like what I was saying about the uh, starving himself in hunger. He's doing these impressive things, but that's Fassbender doing it. It's not the character. I'm not learning any more about Brandon through some of Fassbender's theatrics that he's going through because they because they don't build to anything. They don't interact with other characters in a way that's meaningful. He's doing these things kind of on his own. And the film doesn't really have anything interesting to say. It's just kind of, well, look at what happened to this guy. (laughs) I, I thought he did a good job in showing addiction. And like you, I'm a little iffy about the sex addiction thing. But just his throwing caution to the wind a lot of times, I thought that was very, very much what an addicted person would do. Yes, there's no arc because, well, first, he hates Hollywood endings. I actually read Mm -hmm. that. He doesn't do happy endings. In a Hollywood movie, I think he would go to therapy. He would would get better. But... uh, Nothing, like you said, nothing really happens to him. He has some moments where you think things will change when he has the date with the with this woman in the office. Mm-hmm. Oh, when he cries in the in the club when the sister is singing, and uh, when he takes the sister to the hospital. Those are about the only three times to me he was not a robot. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, I, I think he played a robot in some movie. Yeah, and Prometheus. He remi- <laughs> Promethe- he reminded me a lot of that robot <laughs> in ah. this movie. <laughs> but um, I thought the addiction was done done well. I, I don't particularly see a lot of movies about addiction. I know the research was done only in New York because people in London wouldn't talk about addiction and women don't talk about addiction. I found him very Cobra-like the character, mm-hmm. especially he was, but he had that male gaze that just went on a little too long. Yeah. And there was, like you, Brett, there was a scene in this movie. One, they were very, very relaxed with their nudity. Mm-hmm. Sorry, with their nudity, uh, the brother and sister, which I found odd. And there is a scene where I actually thought it was going to be a rape, an incest rape. It just threw me. It shocked me. It didn't happen. But boy, the way they filmed it, it was like, I know this is going to happen. I know this is going to happen. And the reason I I didn't love the movie, I thought the movie was a little too disturbing for me. Mm -hmm. This is my second time trying to watch this movie. I did succeed, but this movie was a little too disturbing Mm -hmm. for me. The character was a little, not a little, he was cold, he was distant, and for me, unrealistic. But I don't know anyone with this addiction. Yes, I, that's a, I'm, I'm glad you brought it up on, in that way because that is sort of was what was my gateway into what I think is a good value of the film. The second time I saw this movie was in a really great event that's hosted by Columbia College in Chicago called the Cinema Slapdown. And what they do at the Cinema Slapdown is they pick a controversial movie and they show screen the movie and then they have 
one person debate the film to say this movie's just the greatest, the most amazing movie ever, and the and then another person's debating saying this movie's a piece of crap and you're an awful person for even trying to like it, <laughs> <laughs> and then they then it's it's literally moderated by a guy in a referee outfit, <laughs> and he then extends he then asks questions of each the pro and the con side, and then extends the questions into the audience. Um, uh, which which features both people from the public and uh, Columbia College film students, and so th- they showed shame there, and I was I was watched there, and the conversation that followed was incredible because there were at least fifteen to twenty different perspectives on every single part of 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 Fassbender's uh, sexual activities through the film. So certain people would say, okay, so he's doing, he's clearly doing this to just go maintain these impulses and he's doing this as a rebound for for this. And some people were saying, no, that's not, that part that he did was not appropriate. But then other person would say, no, that's exactly what you should do over here. And they're like, no, you should, this, how he's treated his sister is sick. But but other people would say they got warped and there were some people thought there was abuse and some people thought that it was, um, that he had been the abuser, and some people thought that their parent may have been. And so then I just got to this realization that what's really interesting on this movie for me is how it's using sex and sexuality to express a way of looking into a person with mental issues and abuse issues in a way we wouldn't necessarily know if you just took those abuse issues or mental issues at face value. Like my, I think my ultimate example on it from, from me is in Joaquin Phoenix's performance in The Master, which is a great performance of a guy I cannot relate to at all. I, it looks like a guy whose personality was shattered into 100 pieces and sort of 12 or 15 of them were collected in a horrible approximation of an attempt at human behavior. And what I see in shame is a way of, of a similar broken guy who, who internally has a very bad way of how to react. And how do we get into his head? We get into his head from sexuality. Because while we may not be privy to what it means for horrific abuse or what it means for getting to the real depths of a chemical addiction, we know what it means about like desire and wants and lusts and uh, and and so forth, and so the way we can so it gives us a way a plane of relating. You know, there's another way though to get into a character's head like this, which is through other characters in the film, and that's why I think what I think the master succeeds at that that this film didn't is because we're seeing uh, Freddy through the eyes of other characters, mm-hmm. where we're seeing the world of shame through Fassbender's eyes. And I wasn't being enlightened as to his demons that led him to this place based on just the behavior we were seeing in the film. I think it is interesting when it comes to this idea of kind of a sex addiction and the roles to compare him to uh, his boss in the film Mm -hmm. who he goes out with uh, on occasion to uh, pick up chicks. Mm-hmm. And the boss seems really kind of just as predatory. He's a married guy who's just on the make every mm-hmm. night, but he's got this complete dude bro attitude that is really different than uh, than Brandon's dark intensity. Mm-hmm. But they're, they're kind of not really distinguished uh, 
in the, in their behavior. And and so the world, this world is filled with these simplistic people who aren't Brandon or his sister. It's basically a world where every woman is a model and every guy is a dude bro. Mm. And these two siblings are just these kind of messed up people, one of whom has just gone completely predatory. Hmm. It make, makes me now think about like how um, Jake Gyllenhaal was really effective in a film called Nightcrawler, and where he all, he plays a guy with all, with some very significant psycho, uh, psychoses. But part of the the charge that that film brings is how those psychoses make him more effective at doing his work that than other people because he doesn't have these human qualities mm-hmm. that that get in his way and and maybe the maybe a shame is also working on this idea what makes Brandon such a successful guy is that his needs to uh, to pursue this are of a whole other level higher than even his bosses mm-hmm. using in his pursuit I think McQueen is showing us a type of Imprisonment. Okay. Um, Brandon is actually a, it seems to be a prisoner of his compulsion. I don't know what he did for a living, but he didn't make enough money to buy sex, prostitutes, or whatever. He had no other life. His addiction, he, he or like any addiction, or drug addiction, you're a prisoner of that. I did wonder what caused a lot of their issues. The sister had cuts on her arms. Um, she, when she's introduced, she's talking to someone, I guess a boyfriend her or something. boyfriend, yeah. And it, the whole thing with the sister was very odd to me because she's a singer in a club. She doesn't have any place to stay. And she doesn't need money. And I was like, well, why are you living with your brother? And then she sleeps with the boss and completely dis- <laughs> displaces the brother. I'm a sort of a, ger- a germaphobe. So I was going like, you and you didn't even change the sheets. How rude. <laughs> um, but they were obviously very, very close in some way that is not explained in that movie. The nightclub scene when she's singing that very slow theme from New York and that his tears, I just wondered. And I don't care that movies don't explain each and every detail to me. And I like the fact that it made me wonder, like, what is going on with these two? When the sister is in the apartment the first time, she's playing I Want Your Love. I thought that was very interesting. Mm -hmm. And I said maybe that was, because she's trying to contact her brother. And he just will not have anything to do with her. Right. And for her to be playing that when he comes in the first time, I said, okay, I got it. I got it. It's, yeah, maybe it's for the best we didn't meet the parents because that, oh. that must have been really messed up. Oh, sa- saving that for the sequel. Yeah. No, they won't be doing a sequel with this one. Um, um, but joking, joking aside, it, what comes to mind from how we're talking about it is that it could be a look at, at how these two siblings were warped in a way that looks at how affection they say, like Hunter S. Thompson says, like you can, uh, you can turn your back on a person, but you can never turn your back on a drug. In other words, <laughs> that a person 
in the throes of an, a, a significant addiction, the addiction become and the behavior from an addiction becomes all it is. And maybe that's what it takes. Is that's why the siblings have an affection, but the through whether it's abuse or just how they're built, they don't know how to express affection and love and intimacy for people in a platonic way. <laughs> like literally the sexual charge is all they have. And that's why when they're <laughs> interacting with each other, it comes across as, as, uh, uh, as wrong. Or in, in Brandon's case, even in a romantic way, because when he does try to go on an actual date with his coworker, yes. Yes. and there might be an idea that there, there might be some affection between the two, at that point, he cannot perform. And I think the film is trying to mm -hmm. make that an explicit connection is that Brandon's sexuality is isolated from any affection, from anything that would resemble love. And so while he's the sexual creature throughout the film, love seems to be something that is beyond him, whether it's romantic or even in a brother-sister way. I, 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 I'm with you, and I'm sort of, but in a, from another direction. I think because he's a creature who only has that way of expression mm -hmm. <laughs> that when it requires something about him that is not related and the most lustful base level possible, he doesn't know what that is. <laughs> and that's why he's left in a void. So you think that's why he's not able to perform? Yeah. Yeah. Like he literally has no, there's nothing in himself where where it's where it's not as where the object of lust is something besides lust is something um, uh, that's motivating his actions. Yeah, in that case. At the dinner with this coworker, another long scene, when they're in the restaurant, mm -hmm. she asks him about what period he would like to live in, and they seem to be getting along very well. And there seems to be a spark, but she did ask him how long. How long is your longest relationship? And I thought the word relationship was interesting. Yeah. And I thought he was going to say none. Right. right. I think <laughs> he said three months. Three months. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Why do you think he was just so judgmental of her sleeping with the boss? He I, berates her. I think it was his deep down incestual feelings towards okay. his sister. Okay. Right. I, I think if you combine the scenes where they're weirdly physical with each other in states mm -hmm. of undress yeah. with his jealousy when she ends up with his boss that 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 reads right. to me like even he can't admit this out loud to himself that he's attracted to his sister but i think that's the source of that tension i just thought they lived in a strange world when they're on the sofa they're watching what the heck were they watching on that television? It looked mm. like an old um, Betty Boop type cartoon. It was a black and white cartoon. And they're having this conversation. They're sitting on the sofa. You see them in sort of profile from the back. And there's a television that's out of focus. And they're looking at an old Cats and Jammer or mm -hmm. Fritz the Cat, <laughs> Felix the Cat, sorry, uh, cartoon. And I was like, what world are these people living in? <laughs> right. Well, they're living in the Fritz the Cat world. <laughs> <laughs> I, I meant Felix. Yeah. Yes. That, this is a film that makes those kind of connections very, uh, <laughs> very uh, quick to, uh, to, to jump to. Also, the sister is 
less able to guard against her Im- her worst impulses mm-hmm. in a way that uh, Brandon is clearly trying and spending a massive amount of effort. That's that, that effect that makes Fassbender such a great performance. Yeah. It's that you see that there's these gigantic emotions and tensions within him maintained in a sense of perf- almost perfect stillness. So you feel, I know I feel, the, the sheer amount of willpower involved in like keeping his impulses at bay and when he sees his sister misbehaving, she's manifesting things that he has spent a lot of his life trying to hold in. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because that sort of explains the color red, which is only used twice in the movie. Uh-huh. And I was wondering, I kept saying, well, that's life. Because it's only, you only see it on her hat and in the bathtub, the suicide, attempted ah, suicide. Right. It's the only time you see red, bright, vivid red. And I didn't make that connection until you just said that. That she's showing, she's showing something that he can't. Of course, they show it with a big red hat. Yeah. Yeah, nice. That's a great hat. And he teases her about the hat. Remember, he takes it off and (laughs) teases her. He wants that hat off. He wants that hat off. It's a little too (laughs) loud. (laughs) Yeah, a little too much of an announcement. That's, yeah. 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 But Brad, yeah, ultimately, I think one of the things that the movie just kind of leads to be it make it less involving is in fact that that it is so dedicated towards Fassbender's perspective, the perspective of Fassbender's Brandon character, that we don't get to that we very rarely get to see a a viewpoint that's apart from him. It's in a way, it's kind of ironic that in a film uh, that has so much uh, of its topic about sexuality that maybe its biggest failing is onanism. In his next film, McQueen gets incredibly historical by taking a famous memoir and putting it into movie form in his film, 12 Years a Slave, from 2013. Based off the memoirs of Solomon Northrup, a free black man living in 1840s New York, he was kidnapped and sold into slavery. Sold into a New Orleans plantation, Northrop must hide his identity to survive as he is subjected to the whims of a sadistic slaver, hoping to somehow get word of his fate back to his family back home. So we just covered two films where I think there was some complaint, a lot of it from me, about there not being a character arc. Here, McQueen has corrected that because the story of Solomon Northrop is a rich one, it's a tragic one, and it is absolutely brought to life by the performance of Chitwatel Ojeafor, who I think deserved the Oscar he received. And this is really a film that is filled with these moving performances. McQueen grows a lot as a filmmaker from shame to 12 years a slave 
and I do think this remains his best work. We brought up like how he's able to put up a like an evocative image, and here it's a complete bounty. <laughs> One of these films where moment by moment and scene by scene and shot by shot, he gets not just images that are not just evocative, but they are the right images. They are exactly uh, perfect towards the uh, expressing the uh, unfortunate path that Northrop takes through a literal Rorschach view of different attitudes on sla slavery. This is not the first time that audience have been exposed to different mo movies and television series about slavery, obviously Roots. And actually, uh, PBS did, a, uh, did the Northrop story in 1984 hmm. called um, Nor Solomon Northrop's Odyssey, also known as Half Slave, Half Free, starring Avery Brooks. And uh, it was directed by Gordon Parks. It was well received. And of course, we've seen the opposite, Birth of a Nation and Gone with the Wind. But in this movie, this documents slavery with unflinching brutality and power. Very true. It has none of the li limitations that uh, like a television production like Roots may have had, where a lot of the worst aspects of slavery was left to your imagination. The scenes of brutality are as visceral as the brutal scenes in Hunger. The way it approaches it with a character who is not born into slavery, but we see the path that got him there. We see him living as a uh, upper-class free man in New York, uh, very confident and happy with his with his family life, and then just how quickly, because of his color, that was all taken away from him. It very much becomes about his period of adjustment, and he can't believe what he's going through, and we are with him. We can't believe it either, and we want to say, oh, fight back. Don't just let this happen, but this was a situation where that was just not an option. We follow this character from, like you said, from his home life in Sarasota, but we're also as shocked as he is that he's in slavery. We see the scene where he's playing the violin at this function in Washington, D.C. We see him ill. We see them tending to him in the bed. The next scene, we hear chains. Now, we don't know how he got from that bed to that cell. Right. And when we see him, we are just as surprised, befuddled as he is. Like, how did he get here? What happened between those moments? And McQueen never tells you. He never tells you. And that's that shocking scene when I saw it, the audience gasp, when they pull back and you see the Capitol in the background. Yeah, what a statement. Oh. Yeah. yeah, exactly. The the film just is full of just such just brilliant depictions and and a, a absolute startlingly clear eyed view on people's behavior on that like that chain scene you were just talking about. It's just then followed by a moment of 
brutality that both is shocking, not just in how violent it is, but also just how matter-of-factly it is dispensed. It's just, uh, it's it's very clear that this is just the way that this person has been used to treat other people to, to get out of line. You're just going to give just this level of force and for this long a time, and then and then that should that should subdue them and, and so on. And McQueen doesn't stop at just the physical brutality. He really goes into the dehumanization and the humiliation that the slaves have to go through and the absolute conviction from the slave owners that they simply are not people to see both those aspects to see the physical part of it done so viscerally and then to see the little subtle things how even what what could seem like the quote-unquote good slave master played by uh, Benedict Cumberbatch, who seems to have a sense that he doesn't want him to just be killed, but his mercy only goes so far because he goes ahead and sells him to an even more brutal slave owner. And he is, through his inaction, shown to be complicit in this as well as those who are just more plainly brutal. Yeah, that's one of the things that just amazed me about that movie was just the idea of presenting a character like Cumberbatch's character, like the guard in the beginning of Shame. Mm -hmm. It shows something that very rarely... Had, if ever had been depicted in a mainstream film about slavery, that the oppressors are almost as trapped in this system of slavery as the people that they are oppressing. Cumberbatch is, while acknowledging Cumberbatch is a, is, a, is a weak person who does not fight the system, but it doesn't treat him as just an ogre or a lackey or somebody who... He, he's somebody who literally does care about Northrop as as a as a human being but he's just finds himself stuck in the system and he won't transcend it even at great harm for uh, for for Northrop and the other slaves under his plantation but Eliza when uh Solomon and Eliza are on the porch Solomon tells Eliza Master Ford is a good man she says he's a slaver mhm and he goes back and says all the things that Ford has done to Cumberbatch. She says, he's a slaver. Yeah. And for her, that trumps. You cannot be both right. a good man yeah. and a slaver. I think for that part of the film, that conversation really represents his character. Mm -hmm. He thinks he's a good man, but he is still a slaver. Right. And if the law says... It's right, but it's wrong. Is it right? Yeah. That's, that's what right. the film keeps asking. And one of the most affecting scenes in the film takes place on his plantation, which is when he's uh, fought back against uh, one of the overseers, yeah. played by Paul Dano, who, and he's about to be hung, but uh, that that stopped at the last minute. But he's left in this state where he the rope is still around his neck and he's only on the ground on his tiptoes. 
And this shot is held for minutes, what yeah. seems like even longer, as we're, we're watching this. And then we see all these people, other slaves and, and people on the plantation who don't dare help him. There's, it's even more effective because one person does. One person gives him some water. From the house. Right. And it, and it almost shows that there is a potential for another world. There is kind of a way out if more people were like this one person who took a risk to give to give him some water. But we see all these other people who might want to be helpful but are just too scared and going about their business as we see this man uh, hanging there an inch away from losing his life. And I didn't think they were just scared. I just thought that this behavior was just part of life. It was just a, a, a something that was. And while you can't ignore it, it will be someone else in that news tomorrow. That's a good point. Maybe I'm, I'm putting my own modern sensibilities into it, thinking that they'd all be... That, they, that they'd all be looking at this wanting to help. But you're right. If you've lived with this your entire life, the horrifying can become normal. Attention absolutely has to be paid towards this scene, which is one of the greatest sustained shots in all of movie history. But before I get to that, I want to point out that uh, Paul Dano's character continues Paul Dano's streak of having Paul Dano has Paul Dano's ass kicked. <laughs> <laughs> but it does lead to that scene where we're describing. And we also need to address, he's there. Remember someone comes to rescue him before he's actually hung. But the overseer does not chop him down. And the reason he doesn't, well, the only reason he intervenes is because this guy's property, right? It's like your car. Don't take away, don't scratch my car. Right, and I also <laughs> I also took it that he didn't intervene earlier because you have to attain, give him a certain level of suffering, and if they let him go, Ex exactly. other people would have at, made, it, yeah. it, made the hanging right. fatal. Mm -hmm. You could punish him, but you couldn't let him die because he was worth seven or eight hundred dollars right. in 1850, 60, whatever. That's a lot of money. Yeah. Yeah, but when you, when we get to that scene, that scene, he's as he's he is right in the center, just da dangling uh, on the on the uh, ends of his feet, and it's empty behind him. It's not just empty; it's beautiful. It's a nice bright green and very pastoral, and then ever so slowly, as he continues to writhe and struggle, then slowly one person and then another come in and, and and apart from the one that they help this is something that I was looking for myself is that is anybody I was felt especially in a movie theater you feel absolutely trapped before any other person shows up so when a person shows up out of focus in the background I took it as a relief it's like oh okay somebody's somebody's coming but it turns out they're they're not coming to help and more and more people come in and they don't help very few, few even cast a glance in his direction. Instead, they just engage in the normal activities of their daily lives. And part of the world they're in is that occasionally someone is put in that horrible position. And that's just something that they have to... Mm -hmm. Just work there or play because there's even kids playing in right. the back. Kids mm -hmm. playing in the background. Uh, so 
the effect is the effect is astounding because it simultaneously just shows one of the most damning things about this is that the ability of humanity to just continue to have a just a normal kind of science-seeming life with with amazing brutality right there that just doesn't get acknowledged and also showing like literally making an absolute crystal version of the high wire act that Northrop has to do because this it is helped i feel that he is a person who was a free person in the beginning because then he is exploring the different ways that he can escape the different ways he can maintain his humanity the different ways he can relate to um, uh, people black and white in a way that's somewhat similar to when he was able to deal with them as a as a free person and that that just crystallizes in that in that moment that he's hanging about how quickly immolation could just yeah. could drop in and just the sheer sustained desperation of his struggle I agree with you everything you said and in a regular Hollywood movie someone would come and chop him down but you see all the people, you hear the children playing, you see the mistress of the house come, she comes out, she looks at him. They do a very close-up of his feet in the mud, mm-hmm. trying to stay on the tiptoes. Yep. And at any moment, there are only two things you can think of. Someone's going to rescue him or he's going to die. And they just linger and linger on that scene. And the tension that builds in you and the audience and on that screen, you can barely breathe. And, yes. and literally, the yeah. character can barely breathe. So, right? No, yes. Great, great way of putting it. Yes, I, I felt suffocated myself. Yeah. And it, it's really interesting to contrast this with our earlier discussion of hunger when the suffering was presented, but because there was no context to it, we couldn't really invest in what was going on with each character, but because we're so deeply invested in Northrop, because McQueen has narratively set up what happens to this character in a way to consistently involve us, all these difficult scenes to watch are not just there for effect, they're not just there to disturb us, but they're truly meaningful in a way that only the highest level of films like this are in connecting character to a broader social commentary that's so important. It's so insightful on the ways that this institution has its, as its aim to go and dismantle a person's humanity. The thing that angers some of the slave owners the most is when Northrop literally comes up with an idea of yes. of building something that was that none of the other ones came up with. That's what sparks some of the most anger. He has to hide that he can read and write. Mm-hmm. And because that seems to him at the very beginning to be some of his salvation. He's just going to explain what happens. But the the journey of him in this film is almost a journey of losing hope. He starts out with all this hope because he because it's such an unbelievable situation to him. And as the film goes on, we see it being lost and lost. He has to adjust himself 
to survive in this situation where life is so cheap. He will not fall into despair. Right. Well, he has a, a mm-hmm. critical line that said earlier as as one of it, as uh, one of the other people who are in uh, slavery tells him don't don't behave this way because you you'll get killed. And and Northrop says what I think is one of the key things that the, the movie expresses so wonderfully is he says, "I don't want to just survive." I want to live. I'm doing this to live. And the movie examines just what does that mean to go and live in this particular situation. And that becomes more vivid in the next section of the film where he's now on the plantation owned by the Michael Fassbender character. Fassbender, as usual, is amazing. Here he's in a pure villain role he's a sadistic cruel man and we're also introduced to the other slave who we're going to spend time with and relate to played by lupita nyongo as patsy and she is lusted after and raped by uh the slave master and in one scene that that's just devastating she begs Uh, Northrop to kill her because she'd rather die than live in this situation. And and because she doesn't have the chance that Northrop might, being from another environment, we see more the depths of hopelessness in her character, and we also see how Northrop wants to help her kind of like the slaves we were talking about who were who couldn't help him when he was hanging he wants to help her but he can't do that either the way a person's existence can be just constrained on this system is it has never been shown more viscerally at least for at least for me part of it is not just the the physical containment of the torture or beatings or or the or the sec- or the sexual abuse it's that the almost the intent to go and get rid or or dispose of a person's humanity or the value that they have in their in their lives like one of the greatest acting moments i had ever seen and something which el jedifor deserved his award all by his own is the moment where he has to get rid of his violin and this is something that different people have treated with some value about his ability to play. And there's a scene where he's at a circle with uh, and with other slaves, and this, they're, they're singing this spiritual yeah. this spiritual song that Northrop, up until this point, had clearly just held in lower regard as just and and as the camera just focuses on his face. Oh my God! That's you, when he breaks. Yes, that's I, I know this. Yes. Roll Jordan. That Just, was his thing. He breaks. Right. The right. The light in his in his eyes and his form, and and just this big horror and despair and amazing the absurdity of here I am singing this. Not just where am I? How have I come here? But who also who am I to get be put in this position? The scene before that, the reason they're at that funeral, a man dies in the field, just drops dead. Mm-hmm. They put water on him, they kick him, tell him to get up. He doesn't. They wrap him in cloth, they bury him. They come into that funeral, a slow, long shot of an elder woman 
and she starts to sing, maybe, I don't know, maybe a minute or two, long for a movie. And I think that's when it dawns on him, I can drop dead and my fa- I'll never see my family. They don't know where I am. Yeah. I don't exist as a person. I am nothing. And he breaks. I, that's when I said he's lost hope because he embraces that song as if he had been a slave all his life. Yep. Well, he eventually turns to that, yes, because yeah. as as he starts, he very slowly gets into singing it, and he's and he starts by just being like he's sort of shocked at himself that he's participating. Like I even know this. <laughs> yes, and so I mean, in, and so huh, this is where shame took the idea of uh, people at their lowest point and gave it a sort of a face value. Here is a here is a person. All too, and we're it's, we're so painfully aware of how aware he is that he's in this descent, and he's feeling it and experiencing it and being a no and knowing that this descent is happening every step of the way until he succumbs to just singing along. And this is this is what he's going to be doing because this is the first time he actually sings a spiritual. When the movie first comes on, he's already a slave, and. He's cutting cane. You hear music, but no one is singing. Hmm. Mm, good point. He doesn't sing with the uh, Paul Dano ca- character right. when they're singing. He never sings. He, he's not, I'm above this. I am not a slave. I am hmm. not one of you. And even his owners know that. And I think he knows his owners know. And they know something's a little off, and they watch him. I think they watch him a little... Well, more closely right. than But it's than not the in other. their interest to know. Exactly. Yeah. Because one, what I mean, how does that work with your brain? If this person is nothing to you but a plow or a cow, can they recite Shakespeare? That's that dissonance there. Yeah. There's such a huge amount of tension which comes up from basically not acknowledging someone else's humanity. And what does the repercussions mean if you dare to do something like, to do something like that? And as, as a disease of the oppressor, the Fassbender character, his psychosis isn't just limited to his treatment of the slaves. His wife despises him. He is basically alone except for the power he has over yeah. others. It's his only means of establishing his own self-respect in his own mind because he has nothing but his cruelty yeah this is a fascinating way the film which is already amazing in how it shows um uh, northrop's journey and his descent and all the different ways he's intellectually spiritually and physically challenged but when it gets to that plantation it kicks it up to three or four levels by the dynamics of Three other amazing characters, of which Fassbender is one. He is such an astounding depiction of evil, and there is a purity to it. But much like how his character in Shame uses animal lust as the only way he can really express things or or find feeling, here is a case where now the addiction is slavery itself. Unlike Cumberbatch unlike Paul Giamatti's character earlier, who just treats slavery as a financial transaction, the ability to oppress and debase and harm humanity is the only thing this guy can do 
to find value in himself because he is he is yeah he's a loser he's a failure he's a, a drunk he's, he's a drunk right? he can't mm-hmm. he has no he has no control no one cares for no one cares for him and so the institution is you is something that he uses as this big emotional crutch to maintain some pathetically small a horrible phantom of self worth for him. So it really gets at the very toxic underpinning of what I think is not just slavery, but the impulse behind the most vulgar sorts of racism mm-hmm. in this country. The idea that it's it's something that you that a, a, a person would try and hold on as a kind of desperate life raft to think, okay, my life can suck, but at least I'm better than this other human being based on this completely arbitrary physical physical feature and and damn it man fastbender inhabits that everything of he was controlled in in shame is let loose in this film he's so raging and the slightest inclination that like that northrop or in fact anyone else can have a measure of humanity that he will never be able to reach causes him to get into gigantic fits of rage there's a very notable scene where they dance inside the house and he gets so damn mad mad at that and there's a very critical uh, a very critical moment in the very in the very end where um where that dynamic come really comes into play but before i get into that i have to bring in the other magnificent thing where which brings in that climax into play which is lupita nyong'o's i am just simply enthralled and downright became emotionally overtaken by nyong'o and why is that is because Whereas Northrop is the more intellectual, attemptedly practical way of escaping a situation, what really took me for Nyong'o is she is a person who, unlike Northrop, she doesn't have that basis to say, this is so wrong. She's lived that entire world. And yet, within that world, she's found some way to excel. She does more work than the other slaves. Mm-hmm. No matter what tasks are brought into her, she she gives it a level of dedication that even the others wouldn't do. And what I was most taken about in that in that sequence where they are playing the music inside the house is that all the other slaves are dancing in various ways, but she has this grace to it. And and I find that just overwhelming because in the midst of this horrible situation, she still finds that there's something beautiful in the world that she can want to go and express that there's something to get her to move this way and feel this way it's like the music took her to another world exactly exactly and then of course this angers sarah paulson who's yet another great take on that where i feel from paulson's character as the slave owner's wife that she feels constricted in her own ways of southern of dealing as a southern belle and so this expression of gracefulness is something that she can't tolerate. And so she hurls, I think, an ashtray or a statue at her head. Right, but also her husband's affection towards her. I mean, he rapes her, but he seems particularly taken with her that he can't process through his prejudice of slaves being property and inhuman so Mm -hmm. she can't be human in his eyes but because he is still taken with her he lashes out at her and his wife does as well yeah and so whereas there might be all kinds of 
situations where he would be abusive of slaves, when anything involving her occurs, it's like something much, much sharper to him. Yes. He lashes out at himself. The scene where they bring Patsy back with the soap and her punishment is Solomon is to... To whip her. To whip her. And And the wife says, tells the husband, you do it. And she calls him weak and all of that. Mm -hmm. And he, he can't do it. Right, that's the climactic moment that I was that I was hinting about, okay. where all these different elements and the personalities and these amazing characters just all come into play in like just what is just this cauldron of pure psycholo- psychology about the about the psychopathy of, of slavery. I mean, what does it mean like that? She just that Nyango. I just want to rave about her just a little more to say when I saw her and especially on that dancing it was just like. That moment for me just crystallized just what a horrible offense it is. The idea that this grace and this beauty is being attempted by every part of society to just snuff that out. Right, and and the film is with you on that because it is the most brutal sequence in the film. Uh, the blood we see squirting out of yes. uh, the the whipping wounds is one of the more horrifying things I've ever seen on film. This film utilizes violence in a ser- in the serious way violence should be utilized to absolutely infuse it with meaning, because. Everything, Al, you were saying about the psychology of this situation is made physical. And you could have that kind of physical scene done in another context, and we wouldn't even remember it or be talking about it. But because McQueen understands the connection between physical violence and psychological violence and just the disease of all of this, mm-hmm. he creates something that's unforgettable. Right. Yeah. Every moment on that is just pure psychological insight. That the fact that Paulson's character is the one who initiates the idea of the whipping. Uh, she, what did she tear the skin off or something exactly. like that? Exactly. Yes. And then and then that fastbender can't do it himself, but he orders Northrop to do it. And wh- how Northrop picks up the uh, the rule his reluctance the way he the way he does the initial whips the way how then fast better gets goaded into overtaking oh, it and it's now four times brutal because of some part of him that he has that he was trying to hide or occlude and and his wife doesn't let him do his wife doesn't let him uh, do it and he's just exposed so it's so much a consequence of his own rage and self-loathing to get and all to be expressed in these visual terms every action brings out just a, a, an illumination on behavior that's just a brilliant as it is disgusting to behold in this scene. It's a, it's a damned masterpiece of a, of a scene. I want to talk about there are three black women in the film, and it's interesting that their stories, their background stories, are sort of related. Eliza's story, Eliza's the slave that comes with him uh, up north. Mm-hmm. She has the ch- two children. She tells a story that her master treated her like a queen and gave her all those, gave her things, and she lived in the house. She had a girl by him, and 
I would like to congratulate the casting director for the skin color. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they did it right. Then there's Patsy's story. Eliza is a, does become a slave and they sell her children, but she has le- she's led a charm life up north uh, until she was sold by the jealous daughter, I think she says. You have Patsy, who has never known freedom. And then you have the Alfred Woodard character, mm-hmm. who was a slave and now is a mistress. And she says, I have people serve me now. Mm-hmm. So all three of these women are slaves. They're in the system, right. but they're at different points and, and places in the system. But all three of them know that there are constraints, and they, there's only so much they can do, any, all three of them. And Alfred Woodard has only really the one scene, but she conveys how she has been dehumanized as well to the point where her perspective no longer includes ideas of mercy or empathy as to what as to the kind of life she used to have she can only look forward and say i have to do what's good for me and that's that's throughout the movie because even solomon changes from hope to survival. Mm-hmm. I just need to do this to survive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that level of where people find that their will or their spirit has been constrained or broken or left with a void to replace it really manifested itself for me near the end because at the this is a case where McQueen very thoughtfully does not give us any information about what we're watching. When we're watching Northrop working in the field... And then we're seeing just a, 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 a coach come in, and these two white guys come out, and they point to him, and Northrop looks at him and just sees them out from a distance, and then they're coming for him. And only once he gets into the coach, he realizes that somehow a message for a rescue had come through. But up until that point, we don't know. And by doing that, you just I, it just came across to me it's a great realization that Holy shit, he's never going to know. Mm-hmm. He will never, ever trust someone that fully again. Even though when you look at what they're behaving, they're not behaving in any sort of malevolent way, but you just can't trust them. It just can never happen with him. And that leads to one of the most conflicted, happy endings I've ever seen in a movie <laughs> as... Every part of the movie, if you were to describe it, in uh, of the movie's ending, if you were to describe it, sounds like a triumphant, delightful conclusion. But you look at Northrop's face at the end, and he sees with him his wife and his family, and his world has been restored, but the most critical part is missing himself. Right. He mm-hmm. cannot fit on this world even if the world comes back comes yeah. back to him and that just shows in a way just the ultimate devastation that had had, had wrecked upon him. yeah the, the tone of the ending resists all any kind of neat conclusion and it doesn't fall into the life is beautiful trap of only caring about our protagonists. Right. And then once they're all right, we feel relief because we don't feel relief. 
we know that Patsy is still there. Yeah. And even though he may have achieved his freedom, everyone else has in in his life uh, of the last 12 years has been left behind. And in Patsy, we get the personification of somebody that we cared about that did not get lucky enough to be rescued. Mm -hmm. In that moment, which another film would have shown as a, a triumphant positive you just feel this amazing sense of loss. Yes. Even and and a fe- particular feeling of loss of how it is to get back to step one or step zero back in your life. But the loss is so keenly felt in in, he, in that one. He will never be able to get back. I, I love the line he 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 has. I apologize for my appearance. Yeah. Um, I've had a difficult few years, I think that's what he said. But it was something like that. Yeah. I was like a difficult few years, yeah. you'll never be the same. Never. You're going to be paranoid, suspicious for the rest of your life. And we see it all in his eyes. Oh, gosh. Mm-hmm. They didn't even look the same. I don't know how they did that in special effects, but they were like red bloodshot. I, his hair was gray. I expected that. But the eyes, the eyes were nearly dead. Mm-hmm. And at the beginning of the movie, when he's walking Tom with his little derby, puffing his step, his eyes are bright, he's smiling. Mm-hmm. None of that is in that last scene. Mm-hmm. It's like, I've been to hell, I'm resurrected, but I've left my soul somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and to put that in what at the surface is such, would seem to be such a heartwarming conclusion, is another is just a brilliant move by McQueen to say, well, here, here, here's your happy ending. It's not really that happy. No, because you even wonder... What happens when Solomon gets on that buggy? Because we already yep. know uh, Epps, Fassbender's character, is wacko. You know he's going to lose it. And... Yes, I know I know what you mean. Because I was, th- I was not thinking he was going to get, oh, everything's going to be fine. And, and Fassbender would take it very lightly. Yeah. I felt the moment of danger. Every clack of the, of the wheel as it turns, mm-hmm. oh. I, I felt that something... Could something horrible befall them, like just 50 rounds down the road if they meet the wrong authorities, for example? Yeah, I'm not going to breathe exhale until he's up north. <laughs> because it's sort of that same scene, maybe in the middle of the movie, when they're in the auction block, and this guy says, my master will come for me. Yeah. I can't, Lathrop or something like that. Mm-hmm. And he keeps calling after the guy, like, save me, save me. Mm-hmm. And then that scene with Patsy. Yeah. Much yeah. sadder There's scene. There's a lot of echoing. Yeah, um, it's a lot sadder. I mean, yeah. with Patsy, because in a Hollywood movie, he would have said, "Come with me," and been the big right. hero and sweep her up and yeah. put her on mm-hmm. the wagon, and oh, my master will buy you or my friends or no, that's not real. That's not the way it was. Right. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> this and, is real. What do you think about the scene when she asks for him to drown her and? He cites his religion, while well, he couldn't do that because he would be damned to hell, which um, there are a couple of scenes in this movie where religion is used quite effectively. Yes. Part and of uh, Cumberbatch's hypocrisy is him leading the, his slaves his, in prayer. Exactly. And it's what is it doing is showing that how these religious things are being used as another method of constraining. Yes. And how even in his slave state, Northrop is still trapped by these beliefs of his that is 
preventing what might be something that this other person desperately feels that they want and need. And how does that harken back to like the big moral crux in the beginning of hunger? Right, Not in the beginning right. of hunger. In the middle of hunger. hunger. Where it's, it's Fassbender's character is talking about how he also had to make a very uh, serious ethical choice that goes against religious And it tells him that if he does this, it's not a sin. Basically, it's a good deed. Yeah. If you do this, the Lord will not hold this against you. It will be a good deed. And you're right. It's like hunger. She has a clearer view of what her future holds yes. than, uh, than Northrop does. That's right. Mm -hmm. Exactly. She does not have the luxury of Northrop's particular attitudes or ability to delude himself. And, and like, of which... We are meant to judge how much one dwells to the other. Now, there's one little thing I have to ask with regards towards this film, which I think we kind of all are in agreement that is is a masterpiece. What do you guys think of the benevolent Amish person played by Brad Pitt? <laughs> okay, Brad put put his money in, and he wants a part. <laughs> I, I, I sort of feel similar since Brad Pitt did produce, help produce this film. Yes. There is a, a scene in Schindler's List where Liam Neeson goes into some theatrics about, I could have saved one more and one yes. more and one more. Yes. And it's, it's a little hokey, but the film was so powerful that that moment was forgiven. And I think we have the same situation here. Mm -hmm. uh, it would have been a stronger film without Brad Pitt verbalizing what we all know is true. It's a short scene. It gets our attention because it's Brad Pitt. But yes. it's, a short, it's a short enough scene that it absolutely does not... The, the film as a whole does not suffer, but it's definitely a little bit of the weak link in all this. Yeah, I, I'm in a weird position on, on that because I like that scene, and I, I can see what was meant by putting it in there, but the, it doesn't work because it's Brad Pitt. Because it's about a guy who is building a house, and part of the plot of the story involves Northrop's and having to build things. And I think the film make, made a point that he's a worker and that he's an outcast by virtue of his religion. So, in a way, it's sort of trying to say that he's also, he can understand by virtue of just that they're just in the position on the ladder, even though he's not as oppressed, that there's a good reason to see the common. Uh, common humanity in that position. Unfortunately, when he looks like Brad Pitt, you can yes. put enough of an Amish beard on the guy, but it still becomes, oh, here comes the golden god I delivering can... the message. And so that's on that that part where it is, in fact, Brad Pitt. If it was Harry Dean Stanton, it would have worked. But it also didn't need to be verbalized in in the way that we talk to each other now. Because... I think just as people are looking out for their own survival, I'm not sure he would have felt so comfortable giving a modern-day liberal uh, speech about slave ownership in the heart of the Deep South. People that I know, most African Americans I know, they were a little troubled by that scene. First, it was Brad Pitt, mm -hmm. because that was like, what is he doing here? I mean, <laughs> I had my best friend who's a critic, and that's what she kept saying. What is he doing here? So first was Brad Pitt. Two, a lot of my friends and myself, we have a reaction to the white savior. Mm. And that's what a lot of people I know felt online and personally. 
and I know it's integral to the story, but it triggers you in a way that, okay, here's the white guy coming to save us all. So that, that those were the two things. I think if it had just been uh, someone else, a, a lesser known actor, I think it would have made it better. It would not have been so shocking, so blatant. Mm-hmm. And you're right. And yeah. hey, he's Canadian. You know, he's Canadian. Right, and right. All that, all, all, I mean, they tried to remove it from he's a movie star as far as possible. Right. But as soon as he shows up, it kind of takes you out of the, the picture. You don't have to throw in the thing to relieve white guilt. And a lot of people felt that way. That, mm-hmm. Okay, we're just going to put that in there and they'll feel better about slavery. That may or may not have been the, the case. I kind of think that's one of the, the worst issue on this film and if that's the worst one it doesn't even do a smidgen for me to just not make this so illuminating on a very troubled subject of american history that very few movies have explored and even fewer that have done this well it would be a tough act to follow and steve mcqueen took until 2018 to follow it with his film widows After their husbands are killed in a bank robbery, the wives they left behind find themselves in increasingly desperate circumstances. Viola Davis plays the leader of these widows, who realize their only hope may be to carry out their late husband's planned heist with $5 million at stake. Before you start, I'd like to ask one question. Mm-hmm. Is this a heist movie, or is it a movie about gender, race, and politics? Second, I'll go with door number two. <laughs> it's it's a double kind of heist movie, Belinda, I would say. It's an attempt to sneak in the story of gender and race relations in the guise of a heist movie. The heist movie is the disguise. Right, here's the, this is, okay. we talked at the very beginning kind of about how Steve McQueen wasn't necessarily a film guy. Uh, But here is, for the first time, him trying to work within a conventional genre, the heist film. And its strength, for me, is how it disassociates itself from that genre. It is very uninterested in the heist. (laughs) I mean, it happens, but that's not what, what we're focusing on. What we're instead focusing on is a lot of really interesting character building and dynamics and Belinda's, as you mentioned, these these social overlays that the heist is the uh, backbone that ties it all together. But this is a movie very much about what's happening on the edges of the story rather than the story itself. I have to say I put us on the wrong foot when I saw this film because I love heist movies. (laughs) And so when I see a movie that has a heist as its subject, my brain gets into 
heist mode. I love the details of what's the, where's the planning? How do you get the, uh, the scheme together? What's the, um, what brings these people together and how are their skills going to be uh, put into effect? So I'm already thinking of all these things and uh, I feel I may have thought about these things more than McQueen did. <laughs> oh, but one thing that got me a little bit of a hint as to what, quote unquote, really was going on, or rather what was maybe McQueen's bigger concern was when one of the widows is played by Michelle Rodriguez. And one of the things that was caught me by surprise is she's not playing their Michelle Rodriguez character. <laughs> she, is, she does one character, the badass lady who's fighting out against the system, and she'll, she'll grit down and, and do what's necessary, and she's tough as nails. And in this movie... She's not really that effective as a driver or a, or a shooter or a carrier, and uh, that's her character is just a family person. And at that point, I was like, okay, so the movie's looking at how well these people can fit or not fit in this unusual situation they find themselves in. And I think that might be one of the things that the movie does well, although I think it's better or less good in different characters. But what do you guys think? Well, I liked all the characters, I guess. Uh, I thought Viola Davis was over the top for me. She seemed to have been this one-note, I don't know, tough-ass bitch. <laughs> you know, she, it was very one-note. She did have one-note very well. She was on, uh, in tune. Um, I liked the atmosphere of the movie. I think the heist, you're right, is secondary. But being in Chicago, I love the politics, the whole story of the politics. I was just really caught up in that. I was caught up in um, certain camera shots. And if you're in Chicago and you see those scenes, you just go nuts. Like, okay, they did this did this right. I like the fact that he just didn't use all the same tropes that I see in heist film. There's no uh, laser pointer, uh, fancy rope work or uh -huh. anything. You know, these guys are pretty gritty. Uh, which made some of the things unbelievable. That, if I had one big disappointment in the movie, there was something that no one ever discussed in the movie, and for me it was integral, and that is, what did Liam Neeson tell people he did for a living? Mm -hmm. That was <laughs> never explained. They have this beautiful apartment. She, The wife lived with them for... Viola Davis, they'd been married for years, and there was no way to account for his money, and no one addressed that. And every other character, I mean, you know, the the gambler, the things like that. But it had to have been respectful because he had political connections. In Chicago, that's not respectful. No, no, I, I'm using that word ironically, but that he would have had to have the uh, some kind of appearance cover in order for him oh, to... Oh, I, I got yeah, yeah, he could work for an alderman, which right. he probably did. Right. I, <laughs> yeah, it's something that the movie does not quite make, uh, make clear, right. but that's something where, unlike the other films, uh, well, the first two films, part of the thing I think that helped with making 12 Years a Slave as magnificent as it is, is that the memoirs just give us such a great sense of progression and mm -hmm. such a, a fascinating collection of different characters as Northrop experiences a journey. And here is a case where there's a lot of plot <laughs> and a lot of it doesn't quite work. You, you, you are not kidding about a lot of plot. Every single character 
from the main characters to the character actors to the most minor characters has like something going on. <laughs> There's literally one scene with one of the widow's mother who's this uh, has uh, basically trying to prostitute her daughter yeah. and that mother doesn't come back. We never get to follow up on that. But I found out there's a reason why. This was based on a British miniseries from the early 80s that Mm. McQueen grew up on and loved. And he took this miniseries and compressed it into a two-hour film. But I don't think it's structured like a two-hour film. What's good about the movie and what I think is lacking in the movie are the exact same thing, is is this hmm. unwieldy sprawl of plot. Mm-hmm. And two hours just isn't enough time to deal with all the plot in this movie. Now, so you could have made it, you could have gotten rid of a lot of that p- plot and had a much tighter film, or this could have been in another era, a three-hour film or a miniseries itself where you could follow all these really interesting paths. Uh, Belinda, you, you mentioned the politics. I think the Colin Farrell subplot is fascinating, but it's a tease. We don't really get to see where his character came from and where it's going. You get a really interesting dynamic of that he's unhappy in in this political role that his father played with uh over the top glee by robert duvall provides yeah i I have to i have to just jump in to say (laughs) i I was really charmed by how he just like hiked up his pants how duvall's care hikes up his pants to just just chew on those lines yeah especially when there's a scene where it goes hey son i can go kick your ass any day. <laughs> Duval is hysterical. I love now, this is not necessarily a movie that 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 needs no, that character no. to be hysterical, no. but here, but here we are. Right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, we, like you said, Belinda, we could have known more about Liam Neeson's life and, and and motivations, but because the format of the film is this two-hour structure, and the story is so much more wide-ranging. I think that disconnect ultimately keeps this movie from being great. I agree. You're right. It's all over the place. And it's so many characters. The alderman and his psychotic brother deserved a whole movie for me. Because the movie was about power, in a way. Because he, they said, what do you want? He says, I want power. Uh, or he points to the other guy and says that's what he wants. The Robert Duvall character in Colin Farrell, that's a whole different movie. Mm-hmm. Chicago politics. Um, the women, each of them, the, to me that's where it was kind of weak, connecting these women together. Uh, just because of the way it was struck, you have a high-powered teacher's rep, a woman who owns a store who is on the west side. It just didn't seem as if you could get all of these women together to do this heist. And the movie could have been 10 minutes because you give the book to the alderman. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah. <laughs> well, we're getting a little, yes. Okay, well, maybe I'm yes. being too cynical. No, it was, it no. It was sort of that's... like the way I was feeling about the dog until I found out the dog was integral to the plot. <laughs> yes. The, we're, we're, we'll get to the dog, dog. in just a little, <laughs> I'm not a little, little bit. About the dog. But, but you, you have touched on one of the uh, uh, unfortunate situations upon Widows, is that what, what plot comes in from the machinations of the heist is has quite a bit of issues. <laughs> um, I want to compare this to, to three other movies, two, two films from John Sayles, like show that like the sheer difficulty it is to take such a vast collection of characters and situations and environments and to make it work. And, and one of the ways that to, to look at that is to look at his films Lone Star and especially City of Hope, where just it's amazing to look at that kind of balancing act it requires a very deliberate amount of pruning in this area and this area to get from one scene to flow from the next which this movie doesn't quite do it's like oh now we're on this story and now we're on a totally different <laughs> different story now we're on this wife and now we're on like the all the alderman's uh, situation and also it the idea of using all these elements in a heisting hark i think maybe the apex of this that kind of film is heat Heat takes this big, all these multiple characters and all these situations from the heights of po- politics to business to police to uh, cr- uh, criminality and does it in a wonderful balancing act where even though it's a, a vastly expansive, nothing feels out of place and it just moves, moves, moves. Here, there's a lot of, there's a lot of spikes <laughs> as, as we get to the story. I want to hearken in that it does, a, like to your point, Belinda, that it gets that sense of place in a really interesting way. People from the Chicagoland area will have a lot to enjoy by looking at an uncon- uh, like unconventional views on the neighborhoods. Like there is a, a great punk bowling alley called the Fireside Bowl, which uh, uh, had a lot of great shows that uh, is now a pr- very prominent place <laughs> in this story. And there's a really cool scene that showcases this where Colin Farrell is giving a speech uh, in uh, a poor neighborhood about how he's going to revitalize it and, and, and rebuild. And then uh, him and his campaign aide slash girlfriend, whatever, whatever. it's not made uh, clear either, uh, drive away. And, we do- and they have a conversation, but we don't go in the car. The camera follows the outside of the car. We don't even see in the windows, but we follow the car and listen to their conversation in one shot, and then we end up in the more ritzy neighborhood that he actually lives that in was, and is so disconnected from the place he's supposed to represent. They went from like 47th yep. and Dorchester, mm-hmm. which is a really impoverished neighborhood, and they go to Hyde Park. Right. And it... Literally, now I said 47th, right? 47th and 55th, not that far apart. Yeah. And I thought, so you know, they're not going a great distance. I think that may have been in real time because they're mm-hmm. really not going a, a far distance. Right. And there wasn't a cut, right? It no, was, yeah. no, no, it was no. not a cut. No, that shot is worth, it's seriously, I think it's worth seeing the movie by itself. Although, I, if the shot is on YouTube, it's a little micro movie. All on its own because Colin Farrell is talking with his assistant upon these different things about revitalizing the city, and it's very clear that he has a very um, cynical or mercenary view of these kind of of these kind of highfalutin ideas he's talking about, and you just see it in a perfect frame, perfect framing from just the 
the front view looking down on the on the left headlight of this massive vehicle in a way that me harkens back to the great headlights of the car used by the main character from Superfly. <laughs> as, and then as they're talking, as, as you're hearing this cynical conversation of the political machinations, just you just see the neighborhood sl- uh, very, yet, slowly yet not slowly enough become a, a much more uh, upper class neighborhood in a way that gives you to show, wow, just how disconnected the different parts of society are when they're right next to each other. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it was a, just that's just a great micro movie all of its own. Maybe uh, his installations from his early career done right. And he keeps your attention on those, on that on the scene with the, the, the sidewalks or the streets. Yes. Because the windows are tinted. Right. Yes. So you can't see, you don't see them. Yes. Oh, yes. The most expressive thing about that car is the reflections of the neighborhood reflected <laughs> off that black black uh, metal. It was oh. genius. Absolute genius. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's one very notable character who gets into this scheme in a way that I found really interesting. Because she is just trying to make a living. And so every opportunity, whether it's to babysit some kids or, or put up an extra shift at her job at the hair salon, she's just always hustling. And uh, this is just a business opportunity. <laughs> she has no real stake in the, the big drama that keeps all, that is trapping all the other characters. Well, she's like, I, I just this is something I can do. It's a completely weird addition to the film that all of a sudden they've brought the babysitter into <laughs> into the scheme. And that's what I that's what I liked about yeah. that's what I liked about it. And the way that shows her abilities, like in in being a, being a lookout or running, she's she's so much more capable. And part of the capability is her sure drive to succeed. That I found oh, very charming the bus, when she's running for the bus. Yeah, right. you know, it's like I have a job to go to. Exactly. Right. But I thought it was a little bit much of a coincidence that she happened to be the babysitter that one of our widows had, and conveniently enough, she's this incredibly capable person. Ah, but I think, see, but right, I I do agree with you on that. But I think that's part of the thing that the the character's motivation is. She's a babysitter. Because she just, she's always gonna, she's gonna reach out for every mm-hmm. opportunity. The opportunity happens. If she wasn't the babysitter of that person's kids, she would have been the babysitter of one of her other kids, or she would have helped <laughs> one of them with redecorating the store. Or there was, she was always on the lookout for opportunities, and so that's where that came from. But I think also there, there was a scene with that character and uh, a friend of hers who is at the rally with Colin Farrell. Mm-hmm. Yep, and she tells her friend. You're not free. The friend says, oh, they gave me a loan, whatever, whatever. Mm-hmm. And so the friend thinks, well, this is my own business. And she says, like, no, you're not free. You owe the man, so to speak. So the other thing I like about that character is her scene with Viola Davis. Yeah. And I love it. Like, yeah, I have my own gun. You know, right, right. you better gun. watch the way you, you talk, talk to, to me. me. Yeah. <laughs> There's a consistency, I think, in all of these McQueen films that there's some great performances going on all over the place. And because this is an ensemble piece, we get a lot of them. I think the two key ones for me is I do think Viola Davis really delivers uh, kind of in holding things together. Uh And that just her force of will to pull this off is sold to me through her performance, even though... 
the plot aspect of it is a little shaky. I still bought it because of her commitment to it. Mm. But more surprisingly for me, because I'm not familiar with this actress, is Elizabeth Debicki. Yes, a very tall a, woman. Yes, yes, she gave a really <laughs> interesting performance. Yeah, she was she was amazing. Now she really did and have an arc. She yes. had she had an arc. She was the one who I, I mentioned briefly about her mother saying she might as well become a prostitute, and she kind of does. She does meet a guy in more of a uh, escort Escorts. service situation, played by Lucas Haas of all people. Yeah, uh, can, I, can I get a witness? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and they have an interesting relationship. I found their interactions very interesting as as the line between being a uh, kept woman, a someone who's just there because she's being paid, mm-hmm. and there being an actual relationship between them becomes a little blurry. This is one of those things that, if it were a miniseries, could have really been fleshed out. But she also brings this vulnerability to her role, mm-hmm. and she seems almost like the least adept at being part of this heist. Yes. But she does come through. I mean, it's a really interesting performance. The scene where she slaps Viola Davis? Yeah. Perfect. This woman had been abused. Obviously, her mother had been a prostitute because she says something to that effect of, you used to do this. or mm-hmm. it's, So she's following in the footsteps of her mother. She comes from an abusive house. So I really think the fact that she went from this subservient woman to a woman of power in her, her own power was was a great arc for me she was the only the only one that had had the arc she was my favorite arc as, as well yeah. she's she's so like Put, kept down in the beginning. I think you're made clear that she doesn't even realize the per her all of her potential. And I even want to say that like you first see her with like a, 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 a black, black eye. eye. So so she eye. was in the middle of an absolutely abusive relationship. And so <laughs> it was such an amazing twist for me to find that like she's actually such a much better shot than uh, the Michelle Rodriguez character. <laughs> and it's also interesting how she used her um, charm at a gun show and then the female gun owner is says oh well oh well you need well then you need this and this and this and this and this and and she has this mary taylor Moore like smile on her face right. and, she, <laughs> and she walks out with her with um with a taxi driver's worth of armaments in her purse well, she knew how to use her sex yeah yeah she, she and it. right and but her exploration and her increased appreciation of just what she could do of her capabilities and her potential is a is a a very positive thing in the middle of the story as as her as her art comes in and then yes to be able to stand up against Viola Davis's um, rather monolithic to I agree with you Belinda force of nature in that is uh, it's more like lying like like she's like this just totem pole of pure will that the other characters are sort of gravitating around right. that the other characters are gravitating around more than I felt like was an actual actual character to 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 me. That being said, some characters don't quite do less well. Like I would say Colin Farrell's accent is almost as suspect as 
the idea of showing a prospective alderman as a widow kid who can't get away from his daddy. (laughs) So so, so what you're saying is maybe casting uh, two Irish actors as as, uh, Chicagoans wasn't... That didn't quite... No, that didn't quite take for for me. I think Daniel Kaluuya tried really, really, really hard to be, I'm a badass psycho villain. And I found him just... I understand the effort because you do not want to be the crying guy from Get Out for the rest exactly. of your life. <laughs> but uh, defeated by a teacup by Catherine Keener. <laughs> but he didn't quite make it for me. There's a scene where a person's threatened and you see uh, these collections of really big goons come in and you're like, oh my gosh, it's going to be a real t- it's going to be a real beating this guy's getting. And then this Kevin Hart size pipsqueak comes in, <laughs> just like nah. yeah, I and, completely bought bought that. You, okay. I thought that okay. he he had the heist movie role. He mm. was the sadistic enforcer of the of the mob right. boss, basically. There's no reason for Daniel Kalula to be the get out guy for the rest of his life. No, he, no. he he he's he's a really good actor. He was even he was really good in Black Panther playing a uh, mm-hmm. tribal yeah. warrior and yeah. and so I I bought him and I I really disagree with you though on the Colin Farrell character while accents can be questionable. Okay. I think that there was a lot of levels to what he was doing and and I've noticed Colin Farrell lately just being better as an actor and doing more interesting things. I think I started really noticing this around the time of the lobster. Mm-hmm. And in this one too, it was, it was one of the things I want to see more and more of in the film is what is the deal with this guy? Okay. Because he could have been portrayed on a real one note level, but he's very conflicted. The corrupt politician is kind of a uh, Chicago institution, <laughs> sure, yeah. and and surely this movie exploits that for all it's worth. And we see that done through the Robert Duvall character on a one-note level, but you also see that, that, that Colin Farrell is kind of in this world, but has elements of idealism, even though he doesn't really pursue them. That's revealed in just lines of dialogue here mm. and there. And so, uh, again, more screen time, more fleshing out, and I think more could have been made of this character. I don't see that idealism. What I see is innocence. I think in this movie has a similarity to some uh, to some of McQueen's other movies. In he's uh, some people have an equality of empathy towards each character. Mm-hmm. I think McQueen has an equality of oppression towards each character. <laughs> I got the sense that Farrell felt that this was a family responsibility and he has to follow in his father's footsteps and his exp- expressions of, well, this shouldn't be, are more of the ideas that I don't want to do it. Mm. And But he feels as trapped. In fact, I would say he's the mo- more trapped than even Elizabeth Debicki's character feels trapped in their situation. And so... Yeah, their, their arcs do have some similarities. Mm-hmm. So, so that's kind of where I feel that, that uh, McQueen was exploring. And, and that is, I think, an interesting, uh, an interesting thing that the movie does. Where I think the movie gets significantly less interesting and is, a li- and is the primary cause of the downfall is the plot developments itself. 
Now, we're going to get into some significant spoilers here, but b before we do, I would say that if you liked these kind of aspects that we're looking at on Widows, especially on the side of, like, the female characters and, and how they're exploring getting more agency and, getting, and yeah. looking at more of their situation, the film gets some value or interest um, on there. At least that's what I think so. What do you guys think? Would I recommend the movie? Yes. Why? Because I think it's a better heist movie than most. It's not as gadgety as Mission Impossible. It's not yeah. as fluffy as Ocean uh, 8 or any Ocean movie. The acting is superb. There are a lot of holes in the plot, but what heist movie does not yeah. have holes in the plot? <laughs> for what it is and for the subplot, I think it's worth worth seeing. I, I'd agree with that. There's a lot of really good stuff here, and it doesn't all come together. But there's so much that's good here, from the performances to the little traits that are being explored to the world it creates. It almost does everything well but its mission statement. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so it's worth seeing, but come into it with the attitude that it's not going to be something at the level of 12 years a slave. It's not any kind of masterpiece. It's just a, a really interesting way to look at a, a lot of different lives. Well, I made a comment upon how it's uh, one kind of movie of like this, look at these issues, what with the heist movies being a disguise. So uh, as we transfer into getting to some spoilers for the movie, I have to say the disguise is at Halloween thrift store costume level <laughs> because to the extent that you are interested in the heist and what it takes to get this heist, you will be sorely disappointed by plot chasms that you could just ride a incredibly explosive truck through. <laughs> yes, because you wouldn't notice by our conversation, but Liam Neeson is in this film. Right. <laughs> Being very untaken. He is uh, one of the <laughs> passive uh, <laughs> renditions of his, of his Liam Neeson uh, action person persona. I have this really weird feeling about this plot. It's super, super weird because so much of the subtext of it is about the sisters are robbing it for themselves, <laughs> is that the plot is not just incredibly stupid, but the plot is stupid in a way that almost comes across to me as if some daffy dame had wrote it, like as if a studio head had gone and made a bet to say, oh, I think my secretary could write a heist movie. It's not just that bad, but it's bad in that way. There was one moment where I was getting a kind of an uh-oh moment where the bad guys go and uh, uh, attack the chauffeur of Viola Davis's character. And she gets an envelope. And the envelope has, has a Super Bowl ring, which this character has shown earlier that was on his, on his hand. And it is meant to show that he is, uh, he is no more. But the thing is, not only is she's already been threatened with her own life by the main bad guy. Already. So you already know it's a threat. Threatening her um, chauffeur is not going to do add anything to it. But more importantly, for me, was like, okay, no way do you get rid of a Super Bowl ring. <laughs> Just give her the credit card with some of his blood on it. She'll get the message. Or the finger. 
or the finger. Oh, the finger. Exactly. Yeah. The fingers are cheap. That yeah. ring is not, by the way, that ring is not just valuable in terms of money, but it's of one of Chicago's rare appearances in the Super Bowl for football. So I was like, wait a minute. No way would a guy let relinquish that ring. And so this leads to a moment. The reason we haven't mentioned Liam Neeson's in the movie is because after the first five minutes, he exits the movie in what looks like a, a truck full of nitroglycerin that seems to, like, burn up an entire block. <laughs> which, in a way, which I was reacting by going, okay, uh, no, they're still all right. They're still all right. <laughs> they got some asbestos outfit or something. But as it turns out, Liam Neeson is not killed. He's still alive. And that's a very quite a shock to the audience. Revealed to us by the yippiest dog we've dog. seen in the movie yes, exactly. in a while. Who uh, the most carried yeah, around? He's behind the door, and and they, Viola Davis sees his uh, liquor flask, but then the dog, this little white dog, who yeah. is yeah. she carries with her everywhere. Every it's like she, she carries yeah. it, dude. She carries yeah. it so much that I was like, for a while, I was thinking, am I seeing the a female version of Blofeld from the James right. Bond movies? <laughs> yeah. Right, but but yes, I, I think the surprise of Liam Neeson behind the door was supposed to be a little more mind-blowing than it was. Well, it's it shocks an audience, and there's a reason it shocks the audience, because it makes no damn sense. At this point of the movie, he has stolen money from these really powerful interests and faked his own death. And the thing he's going to do is hang around at his girlfriend's place, <laughs> hiding in this little bitty room looking sullen. Like, is this some kind of, like, ladies' fantasy about, like, oh, this is this is how this guy's going to do you wrong. He's going to be hanging around with this other woman in a way. But, again, it doesn't make any sense. He should have run to the hills. He should have used that money. The, the ostensible reason for him still being there, he doesn't have the money. But it was so weird. But he just opened the door, and there's a sadly amnesia. Yeah. <laughs> but you, you forget the reason that he's there. Well, he moves in with her, which goes back to something earlier on in the movie. She has a son, Liam Neeson's son. And remember, his son has died mm -hmm. in the movie. So that's one reason why she did not want to join, because one, she knows he's alive, and two, she has his kid. So he, I guess in his mind, he's with his new family. Uh-huh. Right. Except for the, again, I see that if you're doing a, a Peyton Place level Douglas Sirk kind of melodrama, if you literally have to hide from people to not acknowledge you're alive and have all this money coming, you don't hang around in that place. But that was a reason, wasn't he hanging around for something else other than he had a child? I think he didn't oh, it's have because, the money. Uh, right, the money is still in, uh, this is weird too, in, in the alderman's office, office. Yes. In, the, in, in the safe behind the, the map. In Duvall's office. Right, so, right. so that, I mean, yeah, there is a logical reason, but there's not a really good dramatic reason to make no. this work. No, there's also a reason that you do you did all of your crew horribly wrong for wh why what for a, for a scheme that didn't work <laughs> and then and you're in in, turn, in cahoots with the guy you had robbed. <laughs> um what? And then of course, my favorite was when Viola Davis looks through the book and she this book has oh my it has all of his plans. Oh, he even lists where the shift change. It's like Oh, okay. You do know that if you all you had to do is turn 
three pages earlier, and you literally would have had him write down all that scheme that caused all these problems in the first place. So, so oops, I guess. That book is way more valuable than anything she could have... Anything. Just, just give the book. Just, just so dumb. Just give, yeah. As as is the as is the would be alderman who decides. Oh, I'm gonna threaten your dog. I'm gonna threaten you and your dog myself. Like, well, well remember, the, he's not a politician. He's a gangster. Yeah, I think he was, a, he, was a, he was a gang member before right, he decided he, to go into politics. Right. Well, that's true. But then you, <laughs> the reason you have uh, Daniel Kaluuya's enforcer is. Let him do it. And and also, that poor guy, like, there's got to be a better way to earn a living than just following these widows around. Don't you have, like, actual deals that get you money? <laughs> he's, he's stalking these ladies and just, like, in a way that makes you go, don't you have some other things you no, can do? No, he's a, he's running for alderman. No, he has nothing else yeah. to do. <laughs> then, then and to chase and, he, wa- and he wants all the money in the safe, safe too. too. Yeah, yeah. It's a, in fact, I think Viola Davis even says, "Oh, you want to remake a family with your with this other yes, lady?" Yes, yeah, yes. Which, which again, in a conventional kind of melodrama may have worked, but not in the sense of a heist film when the motivation for him to not be be anywhere else except for the number one place that a dog can find him <laughs> is, is absolutely the wrong move to do. So you, you're talking about conventional things and you just couldn't believe it. And this is definitely a big spoiler alert. The scene where the two gunshots, that's all I'm going to say, the two gunshots, that was so trite for me. I've seen that scene a million times. Two gunshots, you wait for someone to yeah. fall, you right. don't know who you, it is. You, yeah. So you didn't think the fatal attraction ending was... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was... And I've had people discuss and say, well, why did she do that? And did she love him? I right, said, uh-huh. And then also, maybe it doesn't matter if Liam Neeson is in a tiny little room and just sullenly sitting there. He doesn't even have a TV to keep him company. If he has the ability to teleport right there <laughs> without anyone noticing a hideout... <laughs> <laughs> just happens to show up right next to the van and then suddenly tries, yes. tries, tries to go and kill her. Not just Colin Farrell. I find a lot of the things with the, the male characters in the movie is just a whiff. <laughs> but did you, how did you like the explanation of the whole heist on the boat? Oh, it's completely unbelievable. <laughs> Comple- because, because you see how Colin Farrell is there, so mercenary on this stuff. And then he just, I don't want to, I don't want to do nothing. I just want to go away with this money. And, 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 and again, you make it way too complicated. It's in your safe. Just, how about, here's an idea. How about you take it? <laughs> just, uh, I mean, look, I'm no alderman, but I, I believe taking money that doesn't belong to you is something that can come a little more natural than having to have a whole Liam, convoluted Liam Neeson that involves, like, putting cops in danger and a fiery yeah. van and, and three other deaths. But this you know? is also the same guy who decided it would be a good idea to thinking he's behind in the polls to go to his opponent's office and try to make a deal to withdraw from the race if his opponent would then hire him as a consultant? Yes. And what I'm like, that? what? I mean, what were. I know Chicago politics is weird. <laughs> it's not usually that weird. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And then the writing is also scattershot when it attempts to 
tie things up in a bow at the end. It's just all thumbs. It resolves like nothing. <laughs> you end up. The result of all this is that Viola Davis and Elizabeth Debicki's uh, characters are in a diner, and uh, yeah. and then Colin Farrell apparently is alderman for some reason. Because well, because of the sympathy that sympathy vote. Sure, because Robert Duvall was such a beloved character. Exactly from and the he neighborhood. He was killed in a robbery. Yeah, yeah that's, that's right. Which uh, yeah, and so what's going to happen with Colin Farrell being alderman? Nobody Nothing. knows. What's going to happen with this gangster who still, by the way, owes all this money? Who's still probably pretty mad about it? Just has his his henchmen has been mistreated to say the least. Um, well, wouldn't he still be there? I mean, he's not out of the picture, but he's out of our movie. <laughs> well, they just run again. Um, what? <laughs> right. Widows too, everybody. Yeah, right. Oh. So the mechanics of the plot setup, the plot resolution, and the mechanics of the heist itself are are very. Right. <laughs> so I guess see widows for everything but the plot. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Put put the heist thing aside and just watch how the ladies deal in this situation. And in fact, maybe the more that you feel that they realize how absurd the situation they're in, the more the movie gets becomes an enjoyable experience for you but in terms on on mcqueen's career like the guy's just getting started he's yes, we've he, only talked about four movies mm-hmm. and 12 years a slave i mean really that's a masterpiece mm-hmm. and you've only made four movies yeah. some people you we mm-hmm. wait and wait and wait exactly and uh the academy who i have no respect for actually recognized this movie and uh mcqueen as a director and best picture. Now, my pet peeve is usually directors can never strike fire twice. I mean, they can't, can't do it twice. So I'm just wondering, when is his next masterpiece? Or will I just settle for another hunger or shame? Mm-hmm. We'll see. I mean, Widows just came out, so we've got a bit of a wait probably well, until was, his next one. You know, he said he was disappointed with the revenue of, of widows, but one of the problems that widows had was the studio promoted it as a heist movie. Yeah. People saw Ocean's it. Eight and a half, <laughs> right? Yeah. And it came out during a really bad time. There was a lot of other things coming mm-hmm. out that week that it had to mm-hmm. go up against. Yeah, but Steve McQueen was never really a box office guy. He he's pretty much an art film director who ended up in his last two films with a masterpiece and a genre deconstruction. But it seems strange to me that he would put that much interest in just the pure finances of trying to have a big blockbuster hit when everything we've seen through his work is that he is and should be an art house director. Well, maybe it was part of that affection that he had for the source material. And he really liked it, and he wanted to do right by it in a in a on a oh, movie on a movie level. Good point. And yeah. he has uh, in his take on history with hunger, and his take on the memoirs of Twelve Years a Slave. It one of the things that might be that is he wants to do right by the material. He wants and, to do stories that are not told. So even though the Twelve Years of Slave, the book was out there, a lot of people didn't know that story, and he felt it should be told. And maybe that's the way he felt about hunger. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't know this story. I feel it should be told. And the other two, I think Widows was his chance to see if I can do a popcorn commercial movie. But 
I just don't think he is that type of director. I agree with you both. Well, I would go and say that if he's able to take these undershown stories and give it just a fraction of the brilliance that he depicted on 12 Years a Slave, mm -hmm. that is more than enough for me to eagerly anticipate what Steve McQueen will think to direct for us next. Well, I hope that you guys listening in have uh, enjoyed our look at, uh, at the interesting things, good, bad, and remarkable about his work. Belinda, it was so great to have oh, you thank on you. board. Thank you. I had so much fun. Awesome. We've found some great discoveries even in our conversation right now upon his films. Yes, we did. And if you guys have your favorite uh, Steve McQueen films... Uh, and moments of, from his movies or want to give a comment to how we did on our discussion of Steve McQueen, you can give the Directors Club an email at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. The Directors Club is found in multiple places across the internet from iTunes and Spotify at Directors Club Podcast, Facebook at Directors Club Podcast, or on Twitter at DC Podcast. And our episodes can be found on our website at directorsclubpodcast.com. Thanks for listening and hope to catch you on another episode of the Directors Club. Have you thought about what you're going to be putting these boys through? I mean, putting aside what's going to happen to these poor men's families. You're going head to head with a British government who clearly despise republicanism, who are unshakable. They can easily live with the deaths of what they call terrorists. And the stakes are much higher this time. I know that. And if you're not even willing to negotiate, you're looking for them to capitulate. Is that it? Right. So failure means many dead men, families torn apart and the whole Republican movement demoralized. Aye. Worst case scenario, it might well mean all that. But short term, out of the ashes, guaranteed there'll be a new generation of men and women. Even more resilient, more determined. Look who you're talking to. There's a war going on. I thought you might understand. You're talking like a foreigner. You're talking to me like I'm a foreigner. You think I don't know Northern Ireland? I live here, man. Then support us. I supported the first hunger strike on the basis it was a protest. Not some pre-designed to die and balk at negotiation other than complete surrender from Thatcher. That's ridiculous, Bobby. It's destructive. What, what, what's happening here for the last four years? The brutality, humiliation, our basic human rights taken away from us. All of this has to come to an end. Through talking. So what? We take their offer and put their uniform on? Because the last four years have meant nothing. We could do that, though. Or we could behave like the army we proclaim to be and lay down our lives for our comrades. Is there not even a small party that's hoping for a breakthrough that, that could find you negotiating again? That won't happen. Right, forget about that. I want to know whether your intent is just purely to commit suicide here. 
You want me to argue about the morality of what I'm about to do and whether it's really suicide or not? For one, you're calling it suicide. I call it murder. And that's just another wee difference between us two. We're both Catholic men, both Republicans. But while you were poaching salmon and lovely kill ray, we were being burnt out of our house in Rathcool. Right. Similar in many ways, Dom. But life and experiences focused our beliefs differently, you understand me? I understand. I have my belief. And in all its simplicity, that is the most powerful thing.